for several years of my life, uh, I sort of understood kind of like two divisions within Christianity. There were the regular Christians, and then there were the people that were a little more dedicated, the, the disciples. They were, they were the ones that God would perhaps call to be a pastor or to be a missionary or to serve in some kind of special way. However, this division is not something that you'll find in Scripture. It's not something that is taught by God. What is a Christian? I'm going to ask that question this morning to you. Someone give me some feedback. What is a Christian? What does it mean to, what, what does that word even mean? Okay, follower of Christ. A little Christ. What, the, what does it mean? What is a disciple? Learner, student, I heard. Yes, all of those, those things. Um, it's to follow someone, to follow someone's teaching. So when Scripture talks about being a disciple, it is talking about being a Christian. Those two are one and the same. It's not two divisions, the regular Christians and then the, the hardcore follower Christians, the disciples. But to be a Christian is to be a disciple. This is, Jesus makes this very clear all throughout his teaching. Discipleship is what you are called to if you claim to know Jesus as your Savior. So this morning, as we examine what Jesus says about discipleship, understand this is foundational to our understanding of Christianity. It's not just a minor point or, well, we just nuance it differently, but it's foundational to what it means to be a Christian. It's foundational to our understanding of evangelism. It's foundational to our understanding of our outreach efforts in the community, how we spend our time, how we spend our money and our resources. And it cuts through what our culture says it means to be a Christian. Jesus very clearly says there is a decision to be made. And in any decision, there's a cost attached to that, right? We make decisions every day. Sometimes we do a good job of weighing the cost. Sometimes we don't do a very good job. In the sixth grade... I got a test back, and it was, it was a D, um, and I wasn't too happy about it because I knew I was going to hear it from my parents. And I went to a small school, and the teachers would have us switch our papers, and we would grade each other's and just mark them wrong. Well, I had the idea, I'm going to change this D to a B, and and just kind of make it look like it was marked wrong incorrectly. So I slashed the line on the other side, and I went to my teacher, and I said, hey, this was graded wrong. So now, hopefully, I'm going to be like a C minus, so at least I'm in the C world, okay, for my parents. Well, it wasn't too long before I was in the principal's office having to explain why it looked like I had changed my answer from a D to a B, and it looked like, in fact, I had cheated. Well, with all the evidence against me and that I'm sweating and that I've never cheated before. I had confessed. Well, my D went from, well, I went from a D to a zero. I found myself in detention and my parents were a lot more upset that I had cheated than if I had just brought a D home on my test. 
And I failed to consider the cost of that decision. Sometimes we jump into things without really thinking about the cost. Other times we carefully, uh, you know, boy, we do, for me anyway, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to buy a TV. I'll spend two hours researching TVs. For what? It's a TV. Just buy one. But sometimes we carefully weigh that cost. Here, Jesus calls each of us to follow him. When you're presented with the truths of the gospel, you must make a decision. Will I follow Jesus Christ or will I not? Jesus wants us to carefully weigh the cost. Now you say, hold on, hold on. I thought, and I've heard it, that salvation is a free gift that costs us nothing. Right? We've heard that. I've heard that. I will say this. It is true that salvation is free to all who respond by faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that he has risen again. It is, is free. We can do nothing to earn our salvation. However, there is a cost to being a Christian. Which is what we'll consider this morning. Now Jesus deals with three men in our text. And in all three responses, Jesus highlights the radical cost of being a follower of Christ, of being a disciple. And so if Jesus is calling us to follow him, what exactly is he calling us to? Three calls we'll consider this morning. A call to discipleship, or we can say a call to Christianity, is, number one, a call to a new security. In verses 57 and 58, as they're going along the road, someone said to him, Matthew tells us that it's a scribe, he says, I will follow you wherever you go. Now I picture this man just enthusiastically, I will follow you anywhere you go, I'll follow you. Whatever his motive in saying this, we come to realize that he doesn't quite realize what he's committing himself to. Uh, in fact, it reminds me of Jesus' story of the parable of the sower, um, where the, the, some of the seed falls on rocky ground, and it grows up real quickly, but it has no root, and soon the, the, the things of this world and the distractions of this world beat down, and eventually that plant withers and produces no fruit. The point being, they... They were not a true follower. They were not a true disciple. This is this man, Jesus. Now, he has the, I'll say, luxury or the privilege of knowing this man's heart. So he knows this man, man's heart, and he, and he responds by using this example of a fox and a bird. He says, verse 58, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So these animals have dwelling places. They have places to go to shelter themselves from the elements. And I think the heart issue, more to Jesus' point, is they have, they have a security in their home. They have a security in their life that they can sort of fall back on, a place of safety. And you might not actively think about it, but when you go to work or school or you go on vacation and you come back, your home brings with it a sense of security. If all else fails, I have somewhere to lay my head at night. If you own a home, I have a place that I call 
mine, that I own it, this is mine, brings a lot of security. There's stability in your life. Jesus shows what it's like to be a disciple, a follower of him. Basically, you're going to be wandering from town to town, from city to city. There's no security, there's no stability to fall back on. And he, he actually says, if, uh, but the Son of Man, referring to himself, if I don't have a place to call home, you shouldn't expect that for your life either. Understand, Jesus is not saying that this man's needs will not be met. Jesus promises that our needs will always be met if we follow him. They say, well, does this mean that I can't be secure if I follow Christ? Not at all. That's, that's not Jesus' point. Jesus isn't saying that you're no longer having, you will have security, but he is saying your security will no longer be in the things of this world. Your security will not be in your home or your job or your retirement accounts. Your dependence cannot be on the things that you would normally find security in. Your security, rather, Jesus is saying, will be in the one that you follow, will be in me. At the end of the day, it's not if all else fails that I have this earthly possession to fall back on. At the end of the day, I have this God that's in control of all things to fall back on. He is my security. Christ, we sang it in our song, He is my righteousness. He becomes our stability. He becomes my rock, my solid foundation. And please don't be fooled. The things of this world offer no real security. Your house in a matter of two hours, could be consumed in a fire and lost forever. Your retirement accounts, in just a few weeks, could be wiped out. Whatever you cling to for security can be pulled out from under you in a moment. This is why Jesus uses the analogy of building your house on the right foundation, on the solid rock, because all other foundations other than Jesus Christ are shifting sand and offer no hope and security to us. This scribe is anxious about giving up his security, but what he failed to realize is that this home offered no real security to begin with. Sometimes it's amazing to me in my own life what I cling to for hope what I cling to for security, but, but if I do this, then I'm going to have to give up that as if, as if that matters. The things of this world are passing away. And so being a Christian means that we will sacrifice what our heart and mind tell us is secure. It means that we do not hope in the things of this world. It doesn't mean that we have to move out of our house and be homeless. It's not Jesus' point. It's not an indictment on home ownership, but it is a transparent reminder that you, as a follower of Christ, no longer live for your own security. It's a call to place all of your security in him. Jesus does not hide the cost of discipleship. He tells us up front, a call to follow, to follow Christ is a call to go wherever he would lead. And that, that could be a scary thing. 
It means we might have to give up some things in our life that we've never considered giving up before. Not only is a call to discipleship a call to a new security, but number two, it's also a call to a new mission. Verses 59, uh, 59 and 60 to another person. Now Jesus initiates it and he says, what? Follow me. But this man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Let me just stop there. Um, in this culture, it was important to honor your parents. And one way of doing this is to, was to ensure that they had a proper burial. In fact, in, the, in Leviticus, it even allowed a priest uh, to uh, touch the, the dead body, although they would normally considered unclean, they were permitted to touch the dead body of an immediate family member that had passed away in order to get them ready for burial. And so as we read this, these two verses, some of, I think, what happens is it gets lost in our, in our cultural differences. We're dealing with a culture 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world. Um, but let me point out a few things. Number one, when a person died, there were not multiple days between death and burial. I mean, today, if someone were to die today, we might be, realistically, we could be thinking about having a funeral like next Saturday. Um, and we have plenty of time to prepare for that. Well, still today in other parts of the world, but especially in this time, when someone died, they were wrapped, scented, and buried the same day. So if, if you weren't around and, and a loved one died, you weren't going to be there to be at the burial. That's one thing we have to consider. Number two, after a year, the flesh would, not to be graphic, but the flesh would turn back to dirt. It's a good reminder to ourselves when we think we're better than we really are. We are just dirt. God formed us from dirt. And the flesh goes back to dirt, and all you have left is the bones. Well, those bones would then be placed in an ossuary, or a, a con sometimes a large room or a container. And this was the final resting place for that person. So the whole burial process is at least a year. I mean, if this man's father was dying at the moment that he's talking to Jesus, we're still talking at least a year. But there's maybe indication that this man's father was not even dying. He just culturally knew, I have this responsibility and I must wait and go through this process. And so with those things in mind, you sort of see the dilemma of this man. If I follow you, Jesus, and you call me to go somewhere else or to do something else and, and, and travel around with you, my, my father could die at any time, I'm never going to get to hear that. Maybe for like two weeks later, I might get news of that. And I'll never make it back in time for the burial. And I have this responsibility. And I must wait for my father to die and bury him. This is what the culture is dictating to him. This was their normal practice. It made sense to him. Jesus understood what he was saying. And I would argue that the heart of his issue was that his life and perspective were culturally driven. Jesus now is challenging this, 
And he responds with an interesting and, and maybe somewhat controversial statement in verse 60. He says, leave the dead, bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now there's some debate about what he means here. I think it seems best to read it, and some, some translations will translate it this way. Let the spiritually dead bury their, the physically dead. Okay, Let them worry about that. But the point is, in all of this, but, but you, you have a responsibility to go and proclaim the kingdom of God, to publish it abroad. Uh, the, the NLT translation you'll see on the screen says it like this, your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. So, your culture says you can't leave. You have a responsibility to do this. Jesus is saying, as a Christian, your responsibility and your mission changes. You now have a new mission to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And so this man is chased, faced with a choice. Do I listen to my culture? Do I listen to Jesus Christ? The heart of the question, what is really driving this man? What is he most concerned about? Reminds me of a man named Eric Little. Several of you probably, most of you maybe have heard of him. It's a movie in the 80s made about him, Chariots of Fire. There's a picture behind me here. Um, he's an Olympic runner, uh, won a gold medal uh, in Paris, was a runner for Scotland, uh, was a fat, and this is going back into the 20s, and uh, was one of the fastest men. Well, despite the fact that his culture said he was crazy, he gave it all up, and he went to be a missionary to China. I would like to say, boy, he had a, a, just a, a flourishing ministry, and he lived till he was 80, and God used him for decade after decade. But he died at the age of 43 in a Japanese internment camp during World War II. Many have said of this man, his life was a waste. Here's what he says. It has been a wonderful experience to compete in the Olympic Games and to bring home a gold medal. But since I have been a young lad, I have had my eyes on a different prize. You see, each of us is in a greater race than any I have run in Paris, and this race ends when God gives out the medals. Here's an example of a man that said, my mission is not to compete in the Olympics, to get gold medals for myself or my country, to have my fame spread abroad. My mission is far more important because it points to eternal consequences and I am going to sacrifice the gift that God has given me and go to another part of the world and preach the gospel. You say, well, does this mean that my mission is not about fulfilling my dreams. In short, I think that's exactly what it means. Jesus says this, what does it profit someone if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Don't misunderstand. God gives us abilities. He equips us. He gives us desires to, to live out some of those things. But these should not be the things that drive our life. These things are not our mission 
Christians, we are called to the mission of the kingdom, of spreading the gospel both near and far. And so the duty of every Christian is to tell others that there is a holy God that created them, but we have rebelled and rejected this God as king of our lives. And as a result, we deserve eternal judgment and punishment in hell. But Jesus came. God became man, lived a perfect life, died the death that you and I deserve, rose again, conquering death and sin. And, G- and Jesus says that all who come to me by faith, I will in no way cast out. This is the good news. Spreading this message is the mission of every believer. It might mean that some of us are called to be full-time pastors, missionaries, uh, workers in some sort of way in, in the Christian realm. For others of us, it might just mean that we start to change how we view our career, how we view our schooling, how we view our families as parents and children. Jesus is not telling us to neglect legitimate responsibilities. But he is, I think, saying we are to think counterculturally about life. And if our mission is to proclaim the gospel, then our life will be countercultural in word and deed as we push against what culture says and what culture is calling us to live our lives for. And I don't, I don't say these things lightly. So please, don't take this Uh, in a a negative way from from me up here to you down there because I, I battle and struggle these same things all the time. We we have a lot to think about as a family about the possibility of this position. We're comfortable. We have a home. But what is the mission of our lives? There is no category for a Christian who isn't making disciples. It just doesn't exist. Because when you experience the transforming power of the gospel and you begin to grow deeper into that gospel, you can't help but share it with others. You can't help but tell your neighbor and your coworker and your family member. We have a new mission And I do think there's some direct application to our culture today as it relates to our family, our parents, or even our elderly parents. As as we think about those responsibilities, uh, we are to honor our parents, even as adults. As children, we're to honor our parents. But as much as you love them, Our families should never hold us back from following Christ. And sadly, there may be some sitting in this room right now that have heard the message of the gospel multiple times, and all you're thinking about is, well, what will my parents say? Or what will my wife think? Or my husband think if I commit to following Christ? Our mission is to proclaim the gospel everywhere. And if if our family doesn't like this, we obey God rather than men. Some other applications I think we can can consider is 
Uh, our culture, by and large, says as you grow up, maybe this is for young people, maybe not, you get your education, you move to a bustling urban area with plenty of jobs, you find a good company, a good stable job, you work your way up, you buy a home, you raise a nice family. However, maybe sometimes we need to stop and think about the way we think about our education, our careers. Maybe the position we have at work really puts a strain on your family. Maybe it doesn't allow you to meet regularly in worship with other believers. Maybe it makes it difficult to have the energy to love other people outside of your home. And Scripture tells us these things are all part of proclaiming the gospel. But what do we say? What you're saying, uh, you, want, you want me to take a demotion? You want me to move back down the ladder? You want me to downsize my home so I have a smaller house payment and I don't have to work as much? I can't answer some of those questions for you. Because only you know your heart and what your mission in your life is. But I, I can say this, maybe. Maybe that's what it means. I think I'm on pretty solid ground in saying that your career is not your mission. Your house, that new home, is not your mission. Your hobby is not your mission. Your retirement account, that vacation home, that's not your mission. Impressing those around you is not your mission. For some, getting out of your, your little small town or your small little world into something more exciting, that's not your mission. Following Jesus means that your mission is not about you, but about preaching his kingdom. And so we take our orders from him, not from the culture around us. A call to discipleship is a call to a new security, a new mission, and number three, a new allegiance. Verses 61 and 62, we have our third man, And he says, similar to the first man, I will follow you, Lord. Notice everyone kind of has the right language. They're saying Lord, saying the right things. I will follow you, Lord, but, there's another but, condition, let me first say farewell to those at my home. There's clearly a hesitation with this man, a delay. He's not fully committed. And Jesus is looking for people who are all in. This man had other things on his mind. First, before I follow you, first, let me do this. Let me say farewell, goodbye. What's, what's wrong with that? I mean, is Jesus that, is he being that ridiculous that he, this guy can't go home and say bye to his parents? Pack up, a, excuse me, a few things and say bye? Well, literally, the word here, farewell, or goodbye, depending on, on what translation you have, is the idea of bringing an activity to a successful finish. So it's not just that this man wants to say, hey, mom and dad, I'm, I'm out of here. I just want to let you know what I'm doing. See you later. There, there's more to it. He wants to set things in order. 
whatever that is, whether it's selling off of possessions or giving things away or making sure when he comes back things are okay. His priority, though, is not Jesus, but it's his own affairs at home. You say, how do we know this? Well, Jesus knows his heart. And in verse 62, he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I am never, ever, ever to be mistaken for a farmer, okay? I didn't know what a combine was till I was like 20 and I had met my wife. So I am the furthest from things, but I've been asked on occasion to drive uh, and, and plow a field or uh, plant a little bit or on the combine with my father-in-law. And I think he's, the last time I had it like all tangled up with something, I turned too sharp. So I think he's about done with that. But he would tell me this, all right, when you're going in the field, well, now there's GPS, so it's kind of like cheating. But before, he would say, okay, look, find a tree out there or something in the distance. Look at that. Don't look behind you and just stay straight and you'll get everything plowed, okay, uh, the, in, in nice straight rows. Which meant, and now I'm new to this, but I can't look at the deer over there or I can't start daydreaming about, you know, whatever's happening over on this side and, and looking around. And if you, you know, if you've, if you've ever experienced this, you look back and you think, wow, that's pretty nice. By the time you turn around, it's, it's like crooked because you just you took your eyes off. Your priority was uh, not on plowing that field. You didn't keep your focus. The point is that Jesus must be our number one priority. Jesus is more important than anything this guy had, but this man was double-minded. He had one foot in the world and one foot with Christ. And Jesus in Luke chapter 16 Verse 13 tells us you cannot have two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will hold to the one and you'll despise the other, but you cannot serve God and money. You cannot have two masters. You say, well, I mean, is it really that big of a deal? Well, what is Jesus? How does he end verse 62? No, well, first he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back has other things on his mind Notice the words he used, is fit for the kingdom of God. This, these, this is not my language. I would maybe want to say like, well, you're doing okay, like just keep, you know, keep working at it. And it's okay if, but Jesus uses very strong language. You are not fit the word literally, you are, it's not, not suitable, not usable. There is no place for this type of person in the kingdom. Either you are all in or you are all out. Is this realistic? Does Jesus really expect this? Well, first, these are Jesus' words. But I, I think his teaching on this point can be summed up in, in really three words. Dying to self. Being a disciple means that we die to ourselves. Our life is not about us. 
Our allegiance is not to our family. As great of a nation that we live in and we, we value the men and women that have served and we love the freedoms that we have in our country and in an earthly sense, we have an allegiance to America. But as Christians, that is, this country is not our number one allegiance. Jesus is, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul got this. And he says this, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm dead. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus calls Matthew to be his disciple. You know what it says about Matthew? Matthew left all and followed Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, Peter and Andrew are called, and it says immediately they left their nets as fishermen, they left their career, they left what they had, and they left their father, and they followed Jesus. Does Jesus expect this of us today? I would say nothing has changed. It's still a call that he is our number one priority, allegiance. Many things pull for our focus and attention in life. Every day we live with something as our number one priority. I don't know what that is for you. But for a Christian, Jesus and his kingdom must be that priority. We're not going to be perfect in this. Understand discipleship and following Christ. We're at all different levels. It's not about being perfect. He is perfect for us. But we're progressing in these things. And there are going to be many times in our life that there will be things that distract us. But the road to discipleship begins with a willingness and desire to make all things secondary to Jesus Christ. Jesus is not looking for half-hearted followers. He's not looking for people to say, I will follow you, but I need to take care of this first, whatever it is. You fill in the blank. You must be decisive in pursuing Christ. Either you love him or you don't. And please, please, please don't deceive yourself into thinking that you can do something that no one else has ever done. Living for yourself and living for Christ. You can't ride the fence. You can't play for both teams. And so we must prioritize Jesus at the expense of everything and everyone else. Our allegiance can only be one. I have a quote up here for Eric, from Eric Little. Last time I'll mention him, but his faithfulness has been an inspiration to me through the years. And he says this, many of us are missing something in life because we are after the second best. Jesus must be number one. The cost of being a Christian is high. Jesus is not one to sugarcoat things. He tells us exactly what it means to follow him. He's not, it's not sleight of hand. He says, here's what it's going to cost. Are you in or are you out? Jesus is not calling people to make one-time decisions. He's not calling people to walk an aisle or to agree in some intellectual way with the gospel. He's calling us to a way of life. Being a disciple, being a Christian, is a lifelong journey, 
of following Jesus Christ. So as circumstances in our lives change, we yield our allegiance to him, our will, our desires, our mission is about preaching the gospel. As a church, we are striving together to grow more intimately as disciples. Not just to have a, a, a good nonprofit or a nice social club that helps people on the outside, but that as members, that you would covenant with one another, encouraging each other to grow in these things as followers of Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's a call to a new security, a new mission, and a new allegiance. I want to end with just a quick thought as we consider a question. Is, isn't Jesus asking a lot? And I would say yes, in some way he is, but let me leave you with two thoughts. One, Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he's not already done. Jesus, as God, eternal God, never created, never made, left all the glories of heaven and came to this broken world, took on the flesh that many of us realize doesn't last too long and is breaking down, is riddled with disease and sickness and illness. He took that flesh on for one purpose, to carry out the plan of God's redemption on the cross for all who would believe. Jesus, then, is our example. Second thought to consider. Not only is he our, is he our example, but he is, he is the prize. Jesus is the treasure in all of this. Yes, you sacrifice your security. Yes, you sacrifice your comforts and the, your goals are not the number one priority in your life. They're not the things you're striving after. Yes, your focus is on others instead of yourself, but you gain Jesus Christ, who is all for you with your best interest in mind, who gives us eternal life, who brings us into relationship with the Father. He is your security. He provides that soul comfort that you need. He strives for after you and fills you with contentment that you've never dreamed possible. So in those moments of anxiety when you're wondering where the money for the next bill is going to come, or your savings account dips below that designated threshold that you have, it's Jesus that brings you peace and meets your needs. And stressing about whether you're ever going to get that dream job, he provides you with full satisfaction regardless of the career that you're in. In trying to feed yourselves, and, and I, I'm right here with this one, in every form of entertainment and social media posts and celebrity tracking and all the things that we're bombarded with and that our hearts are craving after, he makes you full on him as he fills your soul with his love. So as we count the cost of being a disciple, let us remember that the cost is high, but the treasure that we get in Jesus is so much greater.